Hi, I'm Matt Curtis, founder of Smart City Policy Group. Our team of former policymakers works on bridging the divide between the innovation economy and government. This chat brings together discussions with local leaders, innovators, and stakeholders, while we all try to highlight solutions that work. The world is changing and new ideas are coming to communities every day. Let's highlight the solutions and the best practices and let's hear what works for local leaders. Here now are Smart City Policy Stories. Uh, and so folks, as those guys, uh, as everybody sort of starts to wind down, we're gonna meet some of our panelists for our next discussion. And we're very happy to have them here with us today. Uh, Council Member Chris Hines from Denver, Colorado. Council Member, you and I saw each other just about a year ago and uh, it's good to see you again. I can't wait. Uh, until we're... Good to see you, thanks for having me. I don't know if you remember, we were standing outside and it was freezing cold and I would give anything to be able to be in person outside even if it was freezing cold again. And I can't wait until we're able to do that again. But I, I hope that, uh, that this is a gentle way to identify, obviously in this virtual environment, um, you were doing the standing. Um, I'm actually the first person uh, elected official in Denver's history who uses a wheelchair for mobility. So that's, that's not to be, meant to be a, um, a scolding, but just an opportunity for me to, uh, to, to share that something that we would not know in a virtual platform at all, that just because you couldn't see the wheelchair uh, using Zoom, so isn't that the truth? You know, and that 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 speaks to so much, and 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 uh, it is it is so very true. And you know, just not being able to be in person limits us so much. So I can't wait till we're able to do it again. Um, somebody who's been a longtime friend of mine, Molly Alexander, Executive Director of the Austin uh, Downtown Fa Alliance Foundation. Uh, and Molly, I believe you're 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 you've been a very active participant with the International Downtown Association. Uh, so you, we have a lot of uh, uh, IDA members that are joining us here today, a lot of people who really care about downtown alliances around the country. Uh, it's great to see you. Nice to see you too, Matt. Thank you for having I've us. Seen you, I've seen you so much over 20 years. If we average it out, we're still, we're still doing okay, but I sure would like to see you alive and in person uh, uh, sometime soon. Well, I'm downtown quite a bit, so we'll sh we should join up in a park or at an outdoor cafe. Oh, great, great. Uh, and then two great practitioners uh, who are going to bring some uh, really great discussion to us today. Uh, uh, Roman Padan is the CEO of CASA. CASA brings a, a, a urban short-term rental or urban flex real estate model accommodation uh, for a very particular type of traveler to urban markets. Uh, Roman, how are you doing? Doing well. Great to, great to be here. I'm actually staying in one of our units in Salt Lake City today. So always trying to experience our own product. Oh, great, that's, that's great. Uh, and uh, Adam Rosenberg is the uh, head of regulatory affairs for Mint House. I get to speak to Adam quite often. And Adam, if I remember correctly, are you in Nashville now? That's correct, yeah. Enjoying, uh, enjoying different kind of scenery down here. Great, beautiful, beautiful town. So uh, for many of the participants who are joining us, there are people, uh, uh, for all of our panelists who are joining us today, you guys didn't get to see yesterday, we started off with a session on European best practices, had a council member from Porto, uh, a couple of different uh, representatives from different communities in, uh, in Europe, and then some of the other discussions we've had have been more focused on the more traditional vacation destination markets. But this discussion is about urban markets and, uh, and a kind of a, a uh, a solution that I see as one that uh, truly works for so many council members and, and mayors and, and different stakeholders that I get to speak with. So uh, we look forward to this. So one thing just to 
begin the conversation, so many of the attendees uh, of the discussion don't always get to hear the, about this, is the type of accommodation we're speaking about, short-term rental, or this is a little bit of more of the urban multifamily mixed-use commercial zoned uh, properties we often will refer to as flex real estate or flex rentals. Um, they really speak to a different type of traveler, typically staying for a longer period of time. If I remember correctly, often the length of stays are more in, closer to four days pre-COVID, four days uh, closer to maybe having two uh, guests staying, possibly even three guests staying, often a family uh, or, or a related uh, couple or related group uh, traveling together as opposed to a hotel in an urban market, which is very much closer to one single night. I think it's, if I remember correctly, the national average is 1.1 nights. And again, it's like 1.01 or 1.02 guests. It's a person, sometimes two. I often think of it as, you know, you're often with your significant other at, at uh, most for a night or two. My wife will put up with me and my daughter in a hotel for a night. Uh, but if we're staying for more than a night or two, this is when we'll tend to look for a different type of accommodation. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, about what differs this type of accommodation from um, uh, you know, the others and the different type of travelers that we see. And I think a good place to start with that is Roman, because you, you probably get to see a lot of these different types of travelers. Uh, what, what are the types of guests that you get in your properties? How are they business travelers? And talk to us a little bit about the type of people you saw pre-COVID and then the type of guests that you're getting now during COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So just for context, we operate across about 35 municipalities, 50 buildings, coast to coast, down the middle of the country. So what we're seeing is really national trends and I think representative of uh, what is happening out there. I think what you said is really, uh, really perfectly captured uh, what, what's happening. The, our use is complementary to hotel use and actually I think complementary to the multifamily use. It's increasingly we're seeing within COVID a push towards flexible living, a need for options that allow folks uh, to have a place to stay for a few days, a few months, and in some cases a furnished rental for a year. And cities that are embracing this flexibility as a complement to hotels, which are really one or two day stays for one, one person and to multifamily or uh, single family, which is usually longer stays, multifamily being a year or more and single family being longer duration, I think are gonna be ahead of the curve and are going to uh, win out in the long run. Nine, for us, 90% of our guests are families and business travelers. Before COVID, this was geared more towards business travelers. It's not the hotel business traveler who's there, road warrior, staying one night uh, or two nights, staying by themselves. It is someone on a week-long, two-week-long uh, contract, someone who's coming back to the city week after week uh, for a consulting engagement. Uh, and often it's folks who are traveling with multiple coworkers and want to have a place to cook and to uh, work together in the, in the living area. So it's a different type of business travel. And before COVID, that was the majority. During COVID, business travel has become the minority and family travel has become the majority. So when I say it's about 70-30 before COVID business family, now it's 70-30, 70%, 30% family business. And the, reason, and the reason folks are staying with us is when they're relocating, they're looking for a new place to 
to, to live, they need to try out a city before they, uh, they settle down in the city. Perhaps they're visiting family and friends and they don't want to live in their home because of safety precautions. We're also seeing a spike in doctors, nurses, essential workers who are staying uh, with us. And so all of that is a during COVID phenomenon, but I think will be durable as uh, COVID subsides. Length of stay, you mentioned you're absolutely right. So the average length of stay before COVID-19 was five days for CASA. It's now ranges, it changes month to month, but it's anywhere between 10 and 20 day average length of stay. In all cases, it's much longer than the 1.1 days that folks are staying in hotels. And the average number of people in a CASA is about 2.9. Uh, so and an average number of people in a hotel is closer to one. So again, it's a different type of stay. It's a complementary type of stay. And it's one that is growing as, uh, as, as the world progresses and COVID has accelerated that growth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's so funny too, uh, the mountain of different nuanced stories that you hear from people who need that type of accommodation ranges. But uh, even just the other day, we had a friend who was a council member in a different city uh, and uh, suffered from a, some you know, immune challenges uh, with her own health and, and, and had a pretty big family. Uh, and just because of the type of job that her husband had, they had to make the choice to live separately. So uh, the uh, uh, wife, who was a council member of all things, uh, wound up uh, staying in uh, uh, a, uh, an accommodation like this for a good few weeks while the husband was doing things at the home, just so they are they weren't getting potentially mixed uh, uh, any any germs. And you know, his his proximity to coming in contact with COVID was pretty high, so uh, they they were able to stay separate. Well, that's neat. Now, it, it occurred to me, I need to be uh, cognizant, council member, because I think you might need to step down here uh, in a little bit. So we want to be uh, good with your time. Um, so you're in Denver. Denver is an extraordinarily beautiful town, great place to go visit and so much to do there with events. But what I find is the number of businesses that take me to Denver, the number of conferences and activities is just daunting. I mean, Denver to me is becoming the better location to go if you're going to either you know, do a business conference or something like that than, uh, than what we used to do when everybody, we would go to Las Vegas years ago. Are you seeing kind of an increased growth in that type of activity, do you think? I, I am. And, and actually, I want to give a shout out to Visit Denver, who's uh, participating right now. I see that they're in the attendees list. Um, so uh, certainly, we, uh, we have uh, an economic powerhouse in our airport, Den, our Denver International Airport. Is, uh, has recovered more than, uh, than, than most of the other airports in the United States. And so we have uh, really an economic engine. Um, I, uh, as you can tell by the virtual background, um, I represent a particular area of uh, Denver. Uh, District 10 is right by the urban core. And so I have more than 70,000 constituents and more than 6,500 businesses. And uh, so right by the city center. And definitely we, um, we, we have a lot of people continuing to to come to Denver uh, because it is uh, it, it is a, a gateway between the east and west, and we have an amazing airport that that helps people get here. Um, so it's a it's a central destination. And and by the way, I want to give a, a a shout out to Texas. I grew up in Nacogdoches and went to SMU, got a computer science degree and an MBA in finance, both from uh, from SMU in Dallas. So um, so I have Texas roots, uh, but I have found a lovely spot here in uh, the amazing slice of the world called Denver, Colorado. 
Well, in August, you probably don't miss Nacogdoches or, or most of Texas. It gets pretty hot and it's so pleasant in Denver. That's great. Well, you know, uh, this is an interesting thing. We were going to talk a little bit with Molly Alexander about this as well. And so since we have, you know, you and your policy uh, mindset, you know, here, one of the things that Molly was going to talk to us about in a moment uh, is how we need to rethink potentially a post-COVID world of what are we doing with our urban cores and our downtown and, you know, commercial space and that sort of thing. Um, do you see people changing the way they're working and working differently and traveling differently after COVID? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, so computer science me and we're talking about gig economy, uh, you know, we, uh, we are, we owe this, uh, our luxury of being able to uh, continue to participate in a COVID society because of technology. We have a virtual platform and, uh, and so that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. We've, um, we have, historically been resistant to adopting technology. You know, there's, there's something to be said to actually press flesh and shake someone's hands. And, uh, but, but with COVID, we are seeing a dramatic change back to a virtual platform and, or, or a dramatic change to a virtual platform rather. And uh, even the city of Denver is, you know, as a government, uh, we have 15,000 employees and we went virtual in a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, and so change is hard. But we figured it out, and we see a lot of people, um, a lot of businesses that are also uh, being willing to to embrace the, the technology change because we are forced to, uh, thanks to the pandemic. And I, we'll see, we'll see what remains to be seen. Um, it's a bit of a truism, I guess, but um, uh, we'll see how uh, how COVID, how much permanent change is because of COVID, and how much change is is temporary. So yeah. certainly. I hope that we can continue to press the flesh at some point in the future, but uh, but I think there will be a mix. Uh, not everyone will uh, will continue to then fly to other places. Right, and while we have you, I also kind of want to ask you just about accessibility uh, to spaces. And you know, one of the interesting things that I think this um, uh, model, the urban model, the flex real estate model, offers the high degree of professionalism, so the high degree of transparency, of access, uh, and accessible. Uh, spaces and, and and marketing that effectively in a way that's uh, you know truly transparent uh, to the traveler so that people can see you know what different type of accommodations are offered out there. I just wanted to ask you really quickly if you had any thoughts on that while we have you. Yeah, and and I apologize. I do have a, a, a another meeting in in fourteen minutes, so thank you for your yeah. your accommodation. But speaking of accommodation, that's uh, you know technology. Pretty good segue. Huh? Um, I, technology always uh, uh, precedes government. I mean, you know, from a so I have an interesting intersection of technology, government, and disability. And um, and so you know, Colorado was the first state in the nation uh, to create regulation about transportation network companies, Uber and Lyft, and that's a technology platform, right? And um, we were the uh, you know, electric vehicles were were working hard to electrify and get rid of um, munching up dinosaurs and spewing them into the air. That's, uh, that's bad for the planet. And, uh, and but but there are no regulations about EV charging stations and accessibility either. In this case, um, you know, in short-term rentals, um, the uh, the technology, the the gig the gig economy continues also to to precede uh, regulation. And so, you know, in an ideal market, in an efficient market. 
um, corporations or stakeholders would compete against each other and the people would win and uh, government would stay out. <laughs> um, but it is also my job to represent all the people. And, uh, and so uh, I would, uh, you know, we've had a bunch of conversations that I've just, I was inaugurated in July of 2019. So I've served not even a year and a half, but and we've had a bunch of conversations with um, platforms, with short-term rental owners and associated entities. And, uh, and when I ask about accessibility, they go, oh, that's really interesting. And, and I've, I've been to several countries um, in the, you know, since I, uh, I, and I was a runner and a soccer player growing up and I had a crash. And so this is an acquired disability. Um, so I had a lot of conversations about, um, you know, the platforms and they say, oh, that's really interesting. Maybe we should consider uh, broadening our platform or short-term rental market for, uh, for everyone, including people who need wheelchairs. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure we're not there yet. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm still, I, I still am re relegated to uh, the traditional models like hotels because I know that the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, covers them and, um, and, there's, and the ADA was, is silent uh, because uh, on, on um, short-term rentals, because short-term rentals didn't exist uh, when ADA was written 30 years ago. Maybe I can I can add in uh, Chris. We have a we have a bunch in common. I, I also studied computer science and then got my MBA. Uh, and we operate in Denver, but in we operate in District Nine, so a little bit north of uh, District Ten, right near Commons Park. Uh, but in Denver, uh, to to your point, the the city is I think a, uh, at the forefront. We went through a process to be ADA compliant, and so uh, because we are hotel licensed in the in the property, uh, and that is a requirement in the city. Uh, to, to, to comply with ADA rules. And so that, that is something that I think when the rules are clear, the industry wants to embrace. And so having clarity around how to get, how to get licensed and what the process, what the requirements of licensing are help to, uh, help, help to provide accessibility options for, for folks. And for us, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just the right thing to do, but it's also smart business to be welcoming to, to folks who uh, require accommodations. Um, and that starts, in my view, online as much as it's, it's offline. So being clear in our advertising around what accessibility options exist, whether there are grab bars, roll-in showers, uh, you know, communication equipment for the hard of seeing or hearing, um, that starts online so that you can make an informed decision and, and choice. And then offline, making sure there's the right uh, the, 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 the right accessibility features in the units uh, is, is important, but it starts with the clarity on the, on the uh, clarity of what is required on the licensing and regulatory front. And Adam, I might just ask you to pop in there for a quick second, because the other thing I think you, we, we, you and I have talked about in the past is that what professionalism brings, that that professionalism brings uniformity of those things. It offers the guest kind of a greater understanding of the quality uh, of property that they're going to find, and and the, like like Roman was saying, you know the transparency in the advertisement. Uh, you're you, you're professionally operating um, you know, these accommodations. People are able to clearly see what they're going to get, and they have a great experience when they stay. That's my experience with professional uh, accommodations like yours. But speak to that a little bit. Yeah, we, we champion much like Roman said. We champion um, not only the accessibility in unit, but also online so we can welcome 
people from, from all walks, walks of life and many challenges that they may have. And that's part of what I think is so important about the coalition that we've formed, uh, the Flex Real Estate Coalition, is, is to have that voice and to be able to engage with local um, authorities so that we can clearly lay out what is um, incumbent upon us to provide uh, our, our guests and whether they be with us for 1.1 nights or 1.1 months. Uh, and for, so for us, it's, it's really about understanding what is required by the city and then going above and beyond that so we can encourage um, all types of, of guests to, to be with us. Yeah. Uh, so Molly, you know, you're sitting here looking at all of this and talking about how is this changing downtowns? I mean, so many of the, the, the people that we talk to every day about these urban markets are talking about, you know, potentially new landscape in their downtown, uh, you know, kind of urban centers. You know, you're you're a master of this. You've been uh, talking about downtown Austin, have, helping to reshape uh, and recreate downtown Austin uh, for a long time. What do you think? Where do you see this industry going, and how do you see it uh, kind of playing into a greater, you know, uh, impact on uh, changing our our downtown communities? It's a great question, and I think um, just a little bit more of a thirty thousand foot level and looking at trends um, is kind of where I'd like to throw it out, and then maybe we have some discussions around it or. We shoot holes through it. Um, but when we think about flexibility, um, a millennial generation who is demanding flexibility, and I think about it in Austin about 10 years ago when we no longer saw people in suits and ties, um, we began to see them in Birkenstocks and t-shirts and khakis and shorts going into offices. And office buildings and managers really upset by the fact that dogs were coming in and people were underdressed when they had other high-end potential tenants or clients. And you know, it really kind of shook up the market, but it's market demand. And so when we think about how market demand shifts real estate, real estate's a slow moving animal. How does market demand shift that? And so I think short-term rentals obviously came to the market as we thought about flexibility and the flexible uses of your own home, how to monetize it, the flexible uses of um, investments you've made in your life. I think we'll see it in autonomous vehicles at some point too, when we think about renting our own autonomous vehicle uh, to monetize the cost and investment we've made because we only use our vehicles as an example, you know, maybe two hours a day, three at the most. And so how do you monetize that? And how do you think about real estate as a way in which you monetize um, the, the land cost and the expenses? And how do you think about that? And we begin to see a lot of shifts in real estate um, and how particularly office and hotel has shifted. So we saw this in Europe first and in Asia where hotels began to really think about how do you service different customers and different uses at different times of the day, where it might be you go down for breakfast and then it's a co-working space in the lobby at lunch and then it becomes kind of a happy hour scene and, um, and then how do you bring in local goods and local foods and how do you then think about the um, hotel space as a more of a living unit than just a typical hotel that has amenities and the concierge aspect is different because you know, you can literally work and live anywhere. And um, I think that a pandemic has really shown that employers are going to trust their employees who are adults to do their job. And those employees are gonna say, I want more flexibility, not just working from home, but working from anywhere. So I think that if we think about where people are attracted to go, they're still gonna be attracted to go to a central city where typically there's something to do, there's parks and open space, there's entertainment in a concentrated walkable area that is interesting, lively, and is part of the experience that you want 
in your daily life, in your weekly life, or in your visitor experience. And so I think that as we begin to see what's happening in the short-term rental market, I do believe there's more adoption of thinking about flexible uses. And I think we're gonna see this in the office space. You know, we've gone from offices to open air environments to now that's not really good in a pandemic. We've made all these investments. So how do you reimagine that space? And how do you think about flexible uses? We now know that pods are really important. The idea of pods in schools, pods in workspace, I think will come back that way. So how do we think about this as a much more flexible use than we've defined through zoning and through uses, the use of our cities and, and really maximizing those uses? And um, I also think about it with parks and open space. I think about it with retail spaces. I, I just see this shift going forward that we're not going to go back to the four walls defined as a house or an office. We're gonna define that based on our need and the use that we have at the moment. So that's what I think is very exciting about cities and city building. Um, and that's where innovation occurs. Innovation happens when people get together and create new ideas. It also happens in a crisis. So the best thing about a pandemic or a crisis is at the other end, we're gonna have a great deal of innovation. It's gonna be quite exciting in my opinion to see what comes out of it. As hard as it's been, as we're in the midst of it, the upside is um, the innovation, creativity, and solutions we're going to bring out of it. Um, if we can create a vaccination in a year, my God, what can we do in our cities? Wow. Yeah, I think I think Molly makes a, a great point. Um, you know, we we focus on the modern day business traveler, and that doesn't mean just someone who is working for Bain or for Google, but for someone like myself who uh, works for smaller companies. And we are always working, we're always on our phones, we're always on our computers, and that's kind of where our sweet spot is. And um, before COVID, we really focused on the nightly stays, and we had to learn a new, uh, develop a new muscle to cater to, the, to our um, guests who are going to be with us for a month or two months. And even now, we're seeing um, our business uh, account, uh, business travelers account for over 80% of our travel, and that's medical professionals, that's um, displaced travelers who are, need to uh, find a place to work because they couldn't return to either their home country or their, or their uh, city, um, relocation. So all these alternative uses that are now being leveraged by our beautiful spaces uh, in 11, 11 cities is, is really interesting to us. And you know, people are, are, are just as productive or more productive uh, working from home. And I think as Molly, um, so well put it, the innovation that's gonna happen and the uh, customization uh, that will happen on a, on a company level and a, at, a, uh, at, at, a, at a product like ours is really exciting to learn and to watch and be part of. And council member, I know that we promised we'd get you out of here on time. Uh, do you have any just quick final thought before I know you're gonna to have to camera off? Yeah, I just, so um, the, the reason I'm an elected official today is because of uh, the intersection of disability and um, and policy, and uh, so being a straight white male from middle-aged white male from rural Texas, I didn't really experience any sort of discrimination in the past, and and uh, and and it's just it is systemic. I didn't realize the discrimination against people with disabilities until until I experienced it. So um, in urban markets. That is where we, uh, we as a society have made the most accommodations for the disability community, uh, just because it, it just makes economic sense. It's, it's you know, a smart business decision. And so I would encourage 
uh, particularly in, uh, in short-term rental uh, um, in, uh, operators in urban core, for them to, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a platform, if you're creating a platform, um, actually make it accessible, make even the website accessible so that I don't have to go ask, how do you tell if your, wheelchair, if your units are wheelchair accessible? And then have the response, well, what city you're going to? Or, um, you know, I, I, well, our units have an accessible elevator. Well, that isn't exactly, I mean, an elevator isn't, isn't the, that isn't it. I mean, there's, there's more. There's the access to the, to the toilet, to the shower, et cetera. And that is a real life example that we did just this morning <laughs> with, um, with a short-term rental operator that, um, that is a, a panelist in this, um, in this conference. So just throwing it out there. I don't want to, I don't want, I'm not trying to skewer anyone in, individually. I'm just trying to say that this is uh, an active conversation that, um, that I'm really excited that, um, that we're continuing to have. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really excited to hear uh, Roman say that, uh, and I'm sorry, did I, Roman, Roman? No, perfect, Roman. Okay, um, uh, that, uh, that you are um, actively interested in, um, in making sure that you can collect money from anyone, <laughs> frankly, uh, ability or disability. So thank you so much. And again, I apologize that I have to uh, scoot on. So thank you for the time and uh, we'll stay in touch. No, thank you, thank you. Well, so for everybody watching, uh, stay, stay on because we're not going anywhere. Uh, but thank you, council member, we sure do appreciate you. Um, so, uh, you know, Roman, uh, Adam, Molly, the, the, the big question here is all, uh, we're, you know, we're talking about short-term rental regulations and, and this uh, session was billed as best practice uh, urban markets. One of the reasons is because we really do see this and we hear this time and time again, that this, this model, professional managers that are operating these commercial mixed-use multifamily spaces, not in low-density or uh, single-family uh, neighborhoods, seems to be the answer for these larger urban destinations. Um, you guys just, just speak freely to that. I'll start with you, Roman, but I mean, are you hearing that in the different communities where you're operating? Uh, the, the question is around compliance and around safety protocols or around, is this the answer to making, is that the, is that the question? No, I think uh, compliance with, with pe people following regulations, it's easier to achieve compliance with this model. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if you're comparing us against uh, individual hosts for whom this isn't their full-time uh, job and who, you know, for whom there are thousands of different people who are running their own uh, hotel operations, then there's absolutely no question uh, that we are much more focused and equipped to comply with regulation. Uh, for us, it's a business necessity, right? It's our livelihood. It is the reason for being as a, as a company. So if we don't comply with the regulations, we don't exist. So we have an uh, entire team dedicated to ensuring that we're working with each of the municipalities that we're in uh, to abide by the licensing regime, by the occupancy tax remittance uh, regime, that the, we have clear communications with the stakeholders across the city departments and with the neighboring communities. In our, in our mission statement, the neighbors are really a core stakeholder uh, as, as much as the owners of the properties and the guests. And so we really care about working real collaboratively to ensure that we're complying. What does compliance mean to us? It means that we are 
uh, following the right, it, it means the, the requirements, right? So the, the uh, ADA compliance, the, the licensing regime, but it also means going above and beyond and ensuring that we're following appropriate protocols on cleaning and on uh, safety, making sure we're providing and requiring masks to both our team members and PP&E and masks to both our team members and our guests, confirming if any, in the, in the context of COVID, confirming if any guests have COVID-19 symptoms and providing uh, providing a, a path for them to, uh, to to let us know and act appropriately in, in those cases. Um, so it's 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 a comprehensive toolkit. There's also on the neighbor side, on the neighbor side, we're really focused on ensuring that our guests are good members of the community. So in every one of our units, we have decibel meters, we have cigarette and marijuana detectors, uh, we run background checks, just like. Uh, multifamily communities run background checks on residents. We do the same for those who are staying with us. And folks have to go through a comprehensive uh, set of uh, questions and sign agreements that they are abiding by our rules in order to stay with us. And the reason we do it is to ensure that folks who stay with us are, uh, are held to a really high standard within the community. We've heard of complaints about unprofessional hosts having party houses or having uh, issues with folks uh, smoking on, on property or causing uh, problems in the community. And for us, it's really crucial that we are partners to communities, not uh, not causing issues for communities. And Adam, you get a different type of traveler, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're the type of travelers that you and Roman see in the urban market, um, you know, is different than what people probably see in that single family uh, home, typically. I mean, you're getting, like you said, I mean, a business traveler or families that want to be in the urban center, probably a little bit more, I hate to say mature, but you know, a little bit more mature, less likely to do anything um, you know, that, that might cause any neighborhood concern. Yeah, and we, we do similar background checks and, and have the uh, electronic monitors that, that Roman mentioned as well. I, I think that as, as much as it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're abiding by the rules and regulations set forth by each city, which varies wildly across uh, the diff different municipalities we're in, we want, really want to work collaboratively with those cities to ensure that all the information that we need to ensure um, compliance is readily available online. And we welcome those conversations um, at any time and, and obviously in the future with what we're doing with the Flex Real Estate Coalition. Um, and it, it's really uh, a partnership that, that we see that we can uh, help these cities who do want to make sure that there's compliance, both from a safety perspective, so making sure um, that the, the, the life and safety aspects that, are, that we abide and, and hold so true in our, each, each of our units to ensure the safety of our guests as well as um, the, other, the other tenants in the building, if there are other tenants, we're not operating the entire building, um, but also to, to make sure that these, are, that these um, guidelines are easily found online and then that it's um, easy to access for everyone, not just for us. And Matt, I think, um, I think Austin had a great example with Uber and Lyft. So when public policy is, it's a, it's a slow machine and it takes 18 months and it cannot keep up with a market and market forces as we've seen in the past decade. And so how can you begin to think about laying the groundwork for public policy that both does what it needs to do, protect human life, uh, welfare and safety and allow things to happen within boundaries um, and not really, and, and still move at the speed of the market if possible. It's so difficult because what happened in Austin, obviously, is the local government said no, and Uber and Lyft then fought it at the state legislature. And when you think about local control and the importance of that, 
but also the importance of recognizing when industries are pushing boundaries and this is not gonna stop, um, how do you begin to think about leadership um, and really be getting to bring all of the partners to the table and recognizing you're gonna have to move faster or you'll lose control of, in my opinion, of local regulation more and more because it's a lot easier sometimes to fight it at the state house than it is at every single city council in every single municipality. So I think that we've got to rethink how we shape public policy when it comes to new innovators in the market. And so Molly, you've seen this uh, activity, this specific type of uh, flex real estate model grow in Austin. Uh, would you say that it's been an asset to downtown? Well, I think it depends, Matt. You probably know better than I, it's been difficult. I mean, market forces in Austin and the cost of building structures um, it, I don't think it's been as viable in downtown as it has been in other parts of the market and other nodes like um, uh, the domain, which is north of downtown and a multi-use, uh, multi-purpose center. So I think that with a pandemic and the changing aspects of real estate, that could change. I think that broader than just in downtown Austin, I think it's an interesting play on how to build more residential in downtown and thinking about it more flexibly um, maybe not that short-term, you know, that hotel user, as we said, is one to three nights. Um, short-term rentals are longer stays. Rebuilding retail and the restaurant industry. I think short-term rentals have a really important place in developing what I would call um, shorter-term residents, um, as opposed to um, those, there's some place in between a apartment, a condo, a hotel, and short-term rentals has a place, and it has a place in a downtown economy, in my opinion. We are, we, uh, Molly, we're in three properties in downtown Austin, um, and we're, uh, we're very uh, glad that downtown Austin as a whole has a very clear uh, process for getting licensed. So we're uh, type three, we, we, okay. we, we have type three vacation re uh, rental licenses in, in all those locations. Uh, but in those cities, what we've been seeing is occupancy in a lot of properties has dropped on the multifamily side in, in, in some instances, not necessarily specific to Austin. And owners of properties are noticing a need to uh, supplement their traditional 12 month leases with an option uh, for people to stay for a few weeks, a few months in a furnished apartment. And that often helps fill you know, five, 10% of the building that's now vacant when it wasn't before, and also complements their uh, existing uh, larger part of the property that is a long-term housing. So it's it's a it's a nice in Austin and other downtowns. It's a very nice complement to the use of the majority of the building. Yeah. yeah and however, some in some uh, municipalities, um, they're putting caps on the number of short-term rentals that can be in a building, which is limiting um, the the stakeholder, meaning the um, multifamily owner, uh, the freedom to choose what they want to do in their building. Um, so we would love to. And we are having those conversations in those municipalities to be able to um, sensibly design new regulation that, um, that that can help satisfy the needs of all the stakeholders in in the city. So, Adam, in that circumstance, when when a, when the cities have designed something, when there's a significant cap on the number of properties in a building, uh, my sense is that it limits your ability as a professional operator to to operate there but it's encouraging what we were talking about in the last session as the casual operator. 
The challenge is, as we were discussing the last session, casual operators are less likely to comply with local rules, local laws, and pay taxes. Yeah. So, you know, um, do, do you find that to be true? That do you, is, is your ability to operate uh, limited when, when, when that significant cap is being placed on that per building um, model? Unfortunately, yes. Um, as, as the model grows and as uh, Menhouse uh, ourselves grow, um, we, we prefer to control uh, the guest experience, not just in, in five or six units, but in an entire floor or an entire building, which helps us manage the life and safety and, and um, in, in that building. So it, it, as you just highlighted, it encourages the, the onesie twosie uh, to operate in a, in, a, in a building really unfettered unless the, um, the city has the resources uh, to ensure that the compliance on the life and safety and on the tax side and, and all the things that are important to everyone on this call um, be enforced. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a conversation that we, that we welcome and, and encourage um, to have us at the seat of the table so that some unintended consequences that may not be considered because people don't understand the model or understand the difference between us as a professionally managed operator and uh, the mom and pop. And Roman, in some circumstances, you're also being used, you'd mentioned earlier, the finances that you bring to the owner of a building, operator of a building. Uh, in some cases, you're also part of the construction of a new building, aren't you? Yeah, I actually think it's an important point as it relates to housing available in the city broadly, right? Typically, what we're seeing is we're giving owners, we're, we're maybe taking five to 20% of the, vac of, the of, of the units in a building that are otherwise vacant apartments and allowing those owners to convert what is vacancy and underutilized into cash flow. It allows cities to collect occupancy taxes and otherwise underutilized or, or not utilized space. And then it gives owners the confidence to build their next building because they know that they have the flexibility in developing the next property uh, to fill the space regardless of market conditions. Um, so in a world where people aren't moving as quickly to a city, they can allow for a more flexible use in a world where they're able, in, in a world where uh, folks are moving in mass, they're able to fill the space with a long-term tenancy. And so we're often partnering both with buildings that are already developed and buildings that are in development. That gives owners the confidence to uh, continue with construction, to get uh, financing from lenders, and ultimately to add more, uh, more uh, properties and housing and, and flexible options for places to stay into cities. And Molly, just tell me real quick, are you seeing a different type of traveler coming to Austin than you did, let's say, even just five, 10 years ago? Are you seeing people who are coming downtown for you know, different, type of, different types of experiences? Well, I mean, I think we, during a pandemic, what we're seeing right now after essentially travel flatlined this spring is we're seeing more drive-in. So it's more drive-in destination based. So, you know, our other Texas cities and clearly uh, states around us where it's, you know, 10 hours or less to drive. So we're seeing a lot of the leisure travel market coming back, clearly not the business travel. Um, I think that Austin is a unique um, city in that prior to the pandemic, um, there weren't a lot of available hotel nights. So typically if you're a business travel city, you know, you're filling Sunday through Thursday and then you're back filling Thursday through Sunday with leisure travel. And Austin has um, really strong business and a lot of um, 
there wasn't a, the revenue per available room was quite high, occupancy was quite high, and that's why we continue to see even in a pandemic more hotels being built. So additional product on the market, probably recovery in 2023 or 24 when it comes to the business side, but we're definitely seeing a pickup um, on the leisure side, which we're quite pleased with. Um, and you know the demand for Austin is multifaceted because of events, because of entertainment. You know we have 100, we had 125 restaurants and bar, you know 200 and some odd bars and live music venues and retail in downtown. We'll see what happens post pandemic, but we still have a really great vibe and a great city with a great amenity. So. And I think it's it's an important point to remember that because we are bringing um, the modern day business travel or even leisure travels that are staying for longer than you know the, the typical three nights, they're supporting the local uh, economy. So that might be the coffee shop that is in that is close to the multifamily building that we're in, or they develop a relationship with uh, the restaurant owner or, or the favorite bartender or, or barista. Um, in where they are because they're there for longer periods of time. And so they're able to establish and get to know that city more intimately than they would otherwise. And uh, the taxes for less than 30 days that we're, that we're collecting and remitting to the city is also uh, more substantial than would be uh, for hotels who are pe people are coming, like Molly said, for just a couple of nights because they can't stay in um, a unit uh, like ours, which is apartment style accommodation that has a nice living room and a bedroom, a separate bedroom and a kitchen. Um, so they, they feel more comfortable staying for longer periods of time and not just shoehorning themselves into uh, a bedroom and a bathroom. You know, there isn't a question in the chat, and I just wanted to speak to it real quickly, Matt. So um, the, just a question about STRs, you know, are changing housing demands, and, and we're not speaking about single-family neighborhoods. And I'm just going to say that's not my expertise. Um, in a downtown or an urban environment, uh, zoning is very different, so I can't speak to that. But I wanted to address the fact that there is that question whether it's relevant now or you're going to speak and address it later. And, and, and I, I was just just to add in, I think, to echo what you're saying, Molly. The question is, you know, STRs as they relate to single-family neighborhoods, uh, why are those allowed? And our focus as a company, I think, this uh, panel's focus is on STRs in urban environments and commercially zoned uh, properties. And so we we're not speaking to the impact of STRs in single-family neighborhoods because that's that's not our focus. We believe that there's a place for STRs in commercial zone, commercially zoned areas where they add to the vibrancy and flexibility of the of those of those neighborhoods. Yeah, and just just from a definition perspective, when Roman says commercially uh, zoned areas, it's apartment buildings. So the, uh, we're in a Roman and and uh, Casa and, and Mintel's exclusively operate in apartment buildings versus a single family residence. So yeah, that's that's why we came up with this, uh, the concept for this session is it seems that time and time again, when we look at bigger cities, uh, the um, this model seems like that easy solution for what so many cities are desiring, which is compliance, a great experience for the traveler, uniformity and transparency, which is something we were talking about with council member Hines, um, you know, that great vibrancy being brought to the downtown urban core, but not impacting the, the low density single family uh, uh, homes where so often the casual operators uh, are uh, engaged uh, uh, in, 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 in this activity. And sometimes you hear a lot of concern from communities about that as well. So it does seem like this is a great, uh, a great solution for urban markets. Molly, just to wrap up real quick, uh, you know, you've gone through so many policy discussions 
for Roman, for Adam, for people who are engaged in this? What's the easiest way to approach a city council member? You know, is, is, is there an easy path to start getting a sensible policy discussion started? Well, Matt, you probably have a better answer than I do, but I just think it's important to sit down and discuss the issues, uh, the outcomes, the concerns, and the opportunities. Um, you know, there's risk always in public policy, um, and most politicians are a bit risk averse. So I think recognizing um, not only your own position, but the positions that are counter to yours and bringing them to the table is really important to getting to a solution quickly and getting to yes. I think oftentimes in public policy, the answer starts with no, as opposed to how do we get to yes? And yes may not be the answer. It may, may not come in the form that we all want, but that's what we should be doing in building cities is how do we get to yes, recognizing all of the issues and trying to solve for them as best we can. Great, uh, Adam, Roman, any thoughts for you guys about uh, a great way for policymakers or destination marketing leaders that are on this, uh, that are attending here today to engage with you and have a discussion about how to create good policy around this uh, model? Just having, just inviting, um, companies like Casa or Mentals to have a seat at the table just to discuss and hear our voice as to how we can be um, additive to the discussions that are being considered or any type of regulatory change. Um, as I said previously, that the unintended consequences may not uh, be illuminated because of, uh, of we, we know our business very well and we want to uh, be uh, good standing citizens in every city that we're in. So the more that we can be uh, brought to the table and, and be part of that conversation, uh, we very much welcome and, and um, I know Minhouse uh, would, would welcome that at any time going forward. So my email is adam at minhouse.com um, and uh, very much welcome those, those conversations. Yeah, likewise, I think at the end of the day, we, I wanna emphasize that we wanna comply with uh, requirements in the city. We wanna get licensed. We wanna pay taxes uh, to uh, make sure we're giving back to the community. We want that the, the important thing for us actually is the clarity around the rules and the process of complying with those rules. And so that's why we welcome discussion uh, with cities. We, again, we view uh, neighbors as a key stakeholder and cities are part of that uh, stakeholder. So the more we can engage and provide clarity around rules process uh, and payment for, for taxes, the, uh, the, the better. Well, that's a great, uh, a great message to, to uh, wind up on. So again, if you heard me during the first session, this is the awkward moment where, where we would be saying thanks and you guys would hear, be hearing a loud uh, uh, round of applause and uh, you'd be stepping down from the uh, stage. But we hope that next year we're all able to do this live together for our third conference on short-term rental regulations. So we hope that all of you guys will join us uh, then instead of just you know, having to, and, and live and in person, we're able to shake hands and, and hug and everything at that time. But thank you each, thank you, Molly. Thank you, Roman, thank you, Adam. And a very special thank you to council member, Chris Hines from Denver. You know, uh, everybody had some really great points, really great takeaways that we could talk about. I really loved hearing from Molly about the reimagining of downtowns and how we have to start thinking of, you know, what are we gonna do potentially different with space? I think America's urban markets have been in a renaissance for 20 years. They're the, you know, we have the greatest cities in the world uh, all throughout our country. One of them is Denver. Uh, one of the reasons they're so successful, Councilmember had, uh, had, had told us, because they have that great airport. 
It's such a great destination and they were able to build a vibrant downtown because of it. Uh, of course, Austin here because of Molly and all of the work that she and so many people in her universe and her team have done. Uh, and then of course, so many of these cities are vibrant because of being able to evolve and adopt these new changing trends, including this flex real estate model that uh, comes with the commercial mixed use multifamily uh, apartment building uh, type properties, allowing different types of travelers who are looking for a different type of stay uh, come to these cities and, and help create uh, a, a stronger, more robust economy.